Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ming the Merciless, the villain in the old Flash Gordon comics, was so named because apparently he was merciless. Australia's own Ming the Merciless, as he was known by the troops, was a tough disciplinarian and a hard and demanding leader. His experiences during World War I no doubt led to this mindset, but it was one which would stand his troops in good stead when they faced the Africa Corps under no lesser general than Erwin Rommel, outside a small seaside town on the coast of North Africa called Tobruk. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome to 2021. I hope one and all had a good break and got to spend time with family and friends, indulging in some well-mannered and sober celebrations or in quiet contemplation of your place in the cosmos. Or if you actually like to enjoy yourself, I hope you partied like it's 1999 and woke up in a stranger's backyard wearing nothing but your red grundies and an inflatable duck with one eyebrow shaved and a mouth as dry as a dead dingo. For our international listeners, I wish I could translate that into the Queen's English, but there is actually no English equivalent for what I just said. Suffice to say, I hope you had fun. So it's 2021, and there's a whole new year ahead of us. You may be asking, what does the Australian Military History Podcast have planned for this year? And that is a fantastic question, to which I can provide the following answers. Number one, more of the same, hopefully, interesting accounts of Australia's involvement in military actions around the world. We've got episodes on the Kokoda campaign, the Korean War, more on our amazing nurses, and much more. Two, I'm working on setting up a Patreon page where, for a small fiduciary contribution, I'll be providing selected episodes to provide a visual accompaniment to. These will most likely be the episodes where I'm describing the ebb and flow of a specific battle. Because if, like me, you have trouble visualising what's going on and where when somebody's speaking to you, I reckon being able to see a map and have photos, etc. is ever so helpful. But bear with me on that. Me and technology are not friends. So I'm still trying to work out how to do that. And finally, if you follow us on Instagram, you'll know that late last year I came into possession of the full 12-volume set of the official history of Australia in World War I. I can't tell you how excited I was about that. But it got me to thinking, why hoard it all to myself? Well, I shan't, dear listener, for I shall share it with you in an auditory form. Probably closer to mid-year, I'll be launching another podcast, in addition to this one, where I will go in-depth into Australia's involvement in the Great War, using the official history as a guide. But never fear, I'm not going to be reading it out verbatim because, as much as I respect Charles Bean and his contemporaries, me simply reading the rather dry text would be a surefire cure for insomnia. So I'll be using the history as a guide, putting it into my own words and working through from the Declaration of War to the Armistice, covering the raising of the AIF, Gallipoli, France, Sinai, the Navy, the Air Force and everything in between. I'll be sure to let you know when I start releasing those episodes and how you can access them. So with all that out of the way, let's get 2021 started with one of Australia's more underrated commanders, Leslie Morshead. 
Ming, more formally known as Lieutenant General Sir Leslie James Morshead, KCB, KBE, CMG, DSO, ED, was born in 1889 in Ballarat, the son of a miner from Cornwall and his Australian wife. He attended Mount Pleasant State School, sang in the choir and captained the football and cricket teams. Pretty much a standard childhood in country Australia around the turn of the 20th century. Before we go on, I have no idea of the proper pronunciation of his surname. Is it Morshead or is it Morshed? Well, I've checked the all-knowing inter-Google web and am reliably informed it is Morshead. I disagree, however I'll run with that. Any complaints can be forwarded to Google headquarters in Seattle. Upon leaving school, he attended the Melbourne Teachers College and then taught at Fineview near Young in the Wimmera region of Victoria and then he moved to Armidale, New South Wales. In 1914, he moved to Melbourne to teach at the prestigious Melbourne Grammar. It appears that his teaching career was going well, until some bloke shot another bloke in Sarajevo and the whole world lost its mind. Morshead had commanded the various school cadet corps wherever he taught, and so when World War I broke out, he joined up at the tender age of 25 as a private, but was soon appointed a lieutenant in the 2nd Battalion of the Australian Imperial Force. While training in Egypt, he was promoted to captain on the 8th of January 1915. Morshead landed at Gallipoli with the 2nd Battalion, touching ground at around 9.30. The assault had been going on for a number of hours by that stage, and the 2nd wasted no time in getting into the action. Upon landing, they were sent to join the fighting at the feature known as Baby 700, to assist in what was fast becoming a desperate fight. Early in the day, General McLagan had sent the 9th, 10th and 12th Battalions to attack the position. It was during the attack on Baby 700, that Captain Joseph Lawler, grandson of the Eureka Stockade leader, Peter Lawler, was killed. The Turks counterattacked and forced the Australians back to the neck. Two companies of Morshead's 2nd Battalion were sent to assist. I've been unable to find any record of Morshead joining the fighting at Baby 700 on that first day. But as he was command of C Company on the 28th of April, it's safe to say that whatever he did do during those first days, he was in the thick of it and gave a good account of himself. Records of what Morshead got up to during the Gallipoli campaign are a bit scarce, which isn't a surprise, as he was just one junior officer among many, and Charles Bean didn't mention him until nearly 12 months later in France. However, it seems he developed a reputation for calmness under pressure, and was a good organiser and was promoted to Major on 8th of June. Two months later, Morshead led his men in the attack on Lone Pine. Of the 22 officers in the battalion going into the attack, Morshead was the only one to come out unscathed. There's a fairly well-known photo of Morshead standing in a trench in the aftermath of the attack. There are three other men in the trench with him, and he's standing at the back of the trench looking up at the parapet. He's looking at the legs of two dead men, with a third body off to his right, probably men he commanded during the attack. He can't help but wonder what's going through his mind at that moment in time. If you've never seen it, jump onto the website and have a look. His Gallipoli adventure was brought undone on the 16th of September. Not by bullets or shrapnel or any such thing, but by the ancient and traditional ailment of the soldier on campaign. Dysentery, with a bit of paratyphoid thrown in for good measure. He was evacuated to the 3rd General Hospital on Lemnos, and then to England, where he convalesced while the Gallipoli campaign dragged on to its conclusion. He returned to Australia on the 22nd of January 1916 for further treatment, and was eventually pronounced fit for duty once more. He was in the right place at the right time to be made the commanding officer of the 33rd Battalion of the 3rd Division, which came with a shiny new promotion to the Lieutenant Colonel. The 33rd sailed for England on the 4th of May 1916, where they continued their training on Salisbury Plain until November 1916 with the rest of the 3rd Division. 
They came into the line in December of 1916, into the nursery sector, where all the Green Troops spent their first few weeks in the line. By this stage of the war, the other Australian divisions had fought along the Somme at Pozieres and Moquet Farm, and suffered horrendous casualties in doing so. The 3rd hadn't been there, and were yet to prove themselves to the older divisions, an impression which weighed heavily on them for at least another 12 months until the 3rd proved themselves in the grinder of Passchendaele. The 3rd Division in 1916 was commanded by Major General John Monash, who was impressed by what he saw of Morshead during their time in the nursery sector. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Order, and in the citation Monash wrote, This officer has displayed conspicuous ability in administration and organisation of his battalion, which has attained a high standard of fighting efficiency. His energetic attention to the training of his officers and men prior to embarkation was responsible for the smoothness and dispatch with which the battalion relieved a British battalion in the line a few days after arriving at the front. Since the battalion has taken its place in the line, it has proved itself to be an efficient fighting unit due to this officer's personality and marked capacity for command. He organised and controlled two raids on the enemy's trenches and carried them out successfully. His courage and strong personality has created an excellent spirit in all ranks of the battalion. This officer previously served at Gallipoli. By this stage, even Bean noticed the young lieutenant colonel, stating, perhaps a little excessively, Morshead is a dapper little schoolmaster, only 28 years of age, in whom the traditions of the British Army had been bottled from his childhood like tight-corked champagne. The nearest approach to a martinet among the young Australian colonels, but able to distinguish the valuable from the worthless in the old army practice. Insistent on punctiliousness throughout the battalion, as in the officers' mess, with the assistance of a fine adjutant, Lieutenant Jones, and an imperturbable second-in-command, Major White, and with his own experience of fighting as a junior captain on the 2nd Battalion upon Baby 700 in the Anzac Landing, he had turned out a battalion which anyone acquainted with the whole force recognised, even before scenes, as one of the very best. I'd be pretty happy with that. You can see from Bean's description the type of officer Morshead was, and begin to get an understanding of why he was to be known as Ming the Merciless in the next war. He set high standards for himself, his officers and his troops. He led the 33rd Battalion during the Battle of Messines in June 1917, where the 3rd Division really began to prove themselves worthy of the other divisions. It did come at a cost, though. The routine orders of the 33rd Battalion, dated 16th of June, contains an appendix of the names to be struck off the roll due to death and wounds during Messines. It runs to over three pages, with two tightly packed columns on the first page and the third page, and three columns on the second page. I didn't count them, but that's a lot of names. It was nothing compared with what was to come a few months later when the 3rd Division was thrown into the Battle of Passchendaele. In rotation with the other four divisions, the 3rd slogged their way through the mud and slush in what Ted Smout, Queensland's last surviving World War I digger, described as the worst of the war. Through it all, Morshead led his men in the usual efficient style, even catching the eye of John Monash, who almost took him on as a protege. Monash loved detailed planning, and Morshead probably came as close as any mere mortal could to the lofty standards of Monash-level planning. During the Spring Offensive of 1918, where the Germans smashed the British 5th Army, the 33rd Battalion was detached from the rest of the 3rd Division in order to hold the line at Villa Bretno, a task which they managed to achieve in conjunction with other Australians, thereby restoring the situation somewhat. However, having been halted didn't sit well with the Germans, and so they began shelling the town with high explosive and gas. It was on the 18th of April that, according to the unit diary, the unit took about 12 direct hits with one gas shell entering a cellar and gassing about six of the headquarters staff. 
As well as the adjutant, medical officer and padre, Morsehead was also badly gassed and was removed from the line until June. He was back just in time to take part in the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August, the battle which General Ludendorff declared the Black Day of the German Army. Morsehead entered the combat stage of World War I where he had spent the majority of it, in command of his 33rd Battalion. Monash requested Morsehead to be part of the staff dealing with the repatriation and demobilisation of the AIF and by December 1919, Morsehead finally returned home after more than four years away. He left the army on 15th of March 1920, intending to live the life of the farmer on the block of land granted under the soldier settlement scheme. He soon realised that as a farmer, he made a mighty fine soldier. After marrying Myrtle Woodside on 1st of November 1921, he began to look around for alternate employment. He secured a job with the Orient Steam Navigation Company and in 1925 was sent to England to learn the company's workings from head office. Returning to Australia, he worked his way up through the offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane and eventually found himself managing the Sydney branch. Despite being discharged from the AIF in 1920, Morsehead maintained an involvement with the militia during the interwar years. He was promoted to Colonel in 1933 and Brigadier in 1938. In 1939, the spectre of war reared its ugly head again and Morsehead again signed up to the AIF in command of the 18th Brigade, sailing for England in May of 1940. While England was suffering the attentions of the Luftwaffe and facing down the threat of invasion, Morsehead trained his brigade hard. In January 1941, he was appointed CBE, short for Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. I'm not sure who dreamed up the names of these titles, but I'm pretty sure they'd given the sacramental wine a bit of a nudge beforehand, if you know what I mean. Shortly thereafter, he was promoted to Major General and dispatched to the Middle East, where he took command of the 9th Division. Uh, a quick note on division numbering of the two AIFs. In World War I, Australia raised five divisions, numbered 1 through 5, consisting of 50 battalions, and was known as the AIF. At the outset of World War II, it was decided that those original divisions would retain their unique identity, and so the World War II divisions numbered from 6 to 9. The battalions stuck with the standard numbering, but included the number 2 in front of the battalion number, identifying it as being from the 2nd AIF. Hence the designation, for example, the 2nd 16th or the 2nd 22nd. Got it? Sweet, let's move on. The situation facing him was less than ideal. He had insufficient weapons and equipment. His troops were still relatively new to military life, having only been raised in late 1940. But in Morshead, the 9th Division had the right man for the job. He was described in the official history as every inch a general. His slight build and seemingly mild facial expression masked a strong personality, the impact of which, even on a slight acquaintance, was quickly felt. The precise, incisive speech and flint-like piercing scrutiny acutely conveyed impressions of authority, resoluteness and ruthlessness. If battles, as Montgomery was later to declare, were contests of wills, Morshead was not likely to be found wanting. It was around this time he earned his nickname due to his insistence on hard work and discipline. But it wasn't only his troops who would be on the receiving end. The 9th Division was ordered to Libya where they were to join the force led by Lieutenant General Sir Philip Neem, guarding the flank along the desert. When Neem published a letter implying a lack of discipline in the Australian soldier, Morshead was quick to jump to their defence and when he had concerns about the position of his leading brigade, he bailed up General Wavell, the Commander-in-Chief, no less, who subsequently ordered Neem to make changes to his position. The troops may have seen him as a hard bastard, but when they saw him going into bat for them, they warmed to him, and then quickly got back to doing what the hard bastard told them to do. 
The Middle East campaign up to this point had been fought against Italian soldiers. Now, a lot of jokes tend to be thrown about in relation to the poor fighting qualities of the Italians. But the fact is, they didn't possess the same fanatical devotion to Mussolini that the Germans had for Hitler. Why would they throw their lives away just so Mussolini could claim ownership of part of the North African desert? So they fell back with a comparatively light resistance at Bardia and Benghazi, although some did fight hard, which is where the Australian 6th Division kicked off Australia's fighting in World War II. By the time Morshead and the 9th Division arrived in Libya, the 6th Division had been withdrawn and sent to Greece. Unfortunately for the 9th, it was at this point that Rommel and his Africa Corps joined the fight in North Africa. They hit hard and fast, and soon all the ground which the Italians had surrendered was being recaptured by Rommel, with the British forces being thrown back, largely in disarray, in what the diggers referred to as the Benghazi Handicap. Neem himself was captured during the retreat. Morshead, however, managed to keep his force largely intact and organised. There was only one place to go, and that was Tobruk. They arrived exhausted but unbeaten and ready to turn around and give something back to the Germans. Major General Sir John Laverack was in charge of the defence and ordered Morshead's division to hold the perimeter defences. Telling his officers that there'll be no Dunkirk here, there is to be no surrender and no retreat. He then went about the task of organising the defeat of an enemy which had so far not known the meaning of the word. His plan was simple, in theory. The German war machine had rampaged across Europe using blitzkrieg tactics all arms working together in mutual support and like clockwork. Artillery, air attack, armour and infantry, all part of a brutal and violent orchestra, each playing their part. The secret to victory, to Morshead's eye anyway, was simply not to attempt to combat all the elements at once. Infantry were next to useless against large numbers of tanks, so Morshead forbade them from trying. As the tanks rolled through the position, the Australian infantry was to remain hidden, allowing the tanks to pass. Then, when the supporting German infantry followed behind the tanks, thinking that there was no enemy soldiers in the area, the defenders could open up on them, taking them by surprise and without their accustomed armoured support. The German tanks, on the other hand, unaware that their infantry was in trouble, continued their advance, coming over a rise and coming face to face with what armour the Allies had managed to acquire and the Allied artillery at point-blank range. Thinking the infantry would now rush forward and deal with the artillery, the German tanks moved forward and soon found out there was no infantry. Unable to deal with the well-prepared defensive positions, those tanks still able to do so, turned and fled, joining their decimated infantry in a hurried retreat. It's here that we get one of those anomalies which makes history so much more fascinating than anything Hollywood could devise. As I mentioned, the German blitzkrieg tactics involved all arms working together in concert. However, it wasn't the Germans who devised that tactic. It was a tactic that was developed during World War I at great cost and great pain, and it was John Monash, an Australian, who mastered it at the Battle of Le Hamel and at Amiens in 1918. The Germans had been on the receiving end of that attack, and so they felt the effectiveness firsthand. Between the wars, they developed and refined the concept and employed it successfully. And the anomaly? Well, Monash perfected the concept, and Morshead, Monash's protege, found the antidote to it 20 years later. Seriously, you couldn't make that up in a novel without your reader saying, yeah, right, as if that would happen. With the defeat of the German assault, Laverack evacuated and Morshead took full command of the defence of Tobruk. Much like Gallipoli, the siege of Tobruk wasn't about pitched battles, intricate military manoeuvres and supreme commanders pitting their wits against each other. There were elements of those things, but the main feature was the holding on. Morshead made his name at Tobruk, but after the Easter battle, all he could do in the restricted confines of the perimeter was to make sure his troops were as well supplied as possible 
and to foster the aggressive spirit of his men. Not that they needed much input from him on that front. He insisted that we should make no man's land our land, and if any ground was lost, he sometimes bullied his subordinates into taking it back. This sometimes incurred high casualty rates, which caused some ill feeling from those doing the fighting. But if you look at it from his perspective, any ground taken by the Germans squeezed the perimeter tighter. It handed strategically important features to the enemy. If too many of those gains were allowed to be maintained, then the defence of the town would be hopeless and they would all be lost. But despite all of Morshead's efforts and the amazing contribution of the scrap iron flotilla, it was inevitable that the condition of the troops was going to deteriorate the longer they held on. By August, the condition of the troops was so poor that Blamey managed to convince Wavell that they must be replaced with fresh troops. Morshead left Tilbrook with the last detachment of his 9th Division on the 22nd of October 1941. The successful defence of Tobruk forced Rommel to hold a significant part of his Africa Corps away from the Egyptian frontier, allowing Wavell the breathing room he needed to build the force which would begin pushing the Axis forces back. It was the one shining light from a year of defeats and bad news for the Allies. For his part in the defence, Morshead was appointed Knight Commander of the British Empire, KBE, while the Poles, who made a significant contribution to the defence, awarded him their Virtuli Militari. General Blamey was recalled to Australia to take up a higher command position after a less than sterling performance as commander in Greece and Crete. With Blamey gone, Morshead took full command of the AIF in the Middle East in March 1942. The AIF in the Middle East mainly consisted of the 9th Division, the 6th and 7th Divisions being returned to Australia to face the new threat from Japan. Despite his apparently rock-hard demeanour as commander, Morshead felt strongly about his Australians. He was determined they would maintain their unit integrity and not be broken up according to the whims of English generals. On one occasion, General Sir Claude Orchenleck demanded one of Morshead's brigades be given to him for the use thereof. Morshead just flat out refused, and at the end of the day it was Orchenleck who backed down. It was agreed that the entire 9th Division would be moved to El Alamein under the command of Morshead, and only then did he agree to the temporary loan of the brigade. As Oshinlek prepared to use that brigade, Morshead stepped in and basically tore him a new one for not providing sufficient artillery preparation. He was certainly a hard nut. In July, the 9th Division moved to the El Alamein sector, securing the northern flank and holding it until November, where the Battle of El Alamein was launched. Their time in that sector was not without incident. On the night of the 27th of July, the 228th Battalion attacked a position known as Ruin Ridge and quickly seized the position. However, the Germans were soon attacking the Australians from the rear. In the fighting, three company commanders were wounded, and many of the vehicles that should have brought forward ammunition were destroyed or damaged. The battalion was in danger of being cut off, and so an attempt was made to relieve them. British tanks went forward, but the attempt was abandoned after 22 vehicles were knocked out. By mid-morning on the 28th of July, enemy tanks began moving in on the Australians from three directions. A company was overrun, and there was little choice but to surrender. The Australians were rounded up and marched through the British artillery barrage, resulting in more casualties. In the short fight, they had lost 65 officers and men killed or wounded, with nearly 500 captured. Despite this setback, the other troops in the division grew to trust Morshead because they knew he would not needlessly risk their lives. He still butted heads with Orchenleck whenever he felt the General's plan would result in unnecessary casualties. Soldiers appreciate that kind of thing, but it probably worked against Morshead being considered for higher command. Generals don't take too kindly to unruly subordinates. In the lead up to the Battle of El Alamein, Morshead knew the 9th Division's big moment had arrived. 
He said to his commanders, We must regard ourselves as having been born for this battle. The 9th Division's role in the offensive was to drive a corridor through the enemy soldiers heading for the coast with the intention of cutting off much of the Axis forces in the north. Although the other Allied forces in the south struggled to break through, the Australians had no such issues and were successful in their attack. This had the effect of drawing significant Axis attention onto their position in an attempt to restore the situation. The Australians' casualty numbers reflected this, but they resolutely held on. Morse had regularly visited his forward commanders to get the feel of the battle and to encourage the officers and men. Eventually, the Axis positions in the south, which had been weakened to reinforce the north, finally gave way, and Montgomery, now commander-in-chief in the Middle East, had his decisive victory. But he knew where the credit lay. He told Morshead, I'm quite certain that this breakout was made possible by Homeric fighting over your divisional sector. With the Africa Corps now being pushed back, it was decided the 9th Division was required elsewhere in order to counter the advance of the Japanese. In February 1943, they arrived back in Australia, and in March, Morshead was finally given a corps command, taking over two corps, which still contained his beloved 9th Division, but also included the 6th and the 7th. From the deserts of North Africa, he now found himself conducting battles in the jungle of New Guinea. This was a massive adjustment for him. When he was handed a report early on, which read, The gun at 965-476 is now identified as a light anti-aircraft gun. A Jap was killed by booby trap at 543-267. He was a bit perplexed. In North Africa, he received reports of divisions of infantry, troops of tanks and batteries of artillery. Now it's a report about a single gun and a single enemy soldier. However, always the consummate soldier, he got on with the job. At Finchhafen, on the 17th of October, he sensed the Japanese were preparing for a massive counterattack. He ordered the 26th Brigade to rush to the position to reinforce the 9th Division, along with a number of tanks. The Japanese attacked, but were crushed by the World War Morshead was promoted to command of the New Guinea Force on 7th of November 1943. He oversaw the successful battles of Saddleburg, Jiva Yang, Sio and Shaggy Ridge. He was occasionally accused, mostly by Major General Vasey, of favouring the troops and units which had fought at El Alamein. Regardless, he pushed on and by April 1944, with the capture of Madang, the threat of Japanese occupation of New Guinea was halted. Morse had handed over command of the New Guinea force in May 1944 and returned to Australia. Many in the media mused that after four years of hard fighting, he'd finally reached his limit. But it was actually General Blamey who ordered the return so that Morshead would be in position to take overall command should Blamey become incapacitated. Morshead took command of one corps in the Atherton Tablelands and in early 1945 was informed that one corps would form the spearhead of Allied operations in Borneo under the direct command of Douglas MacArthur. One corps operations at Tarakan, North Borneo and Balakpapan were largely successful, resulting in relatively few casualties. By now, the Japanese were on their last legs, and in August they finally capitulated, bringing World War II to an end. Morshead was offered a number of military roles upon his return to Australia. He went on the reserve list in January 1946, and returned to his old job as manager of the New South Wales branch of the Orient Line, and became general manager for Australia in 1948. In 1950, he headed an organisation known as the Association a secret organisation to oppose communist attempts at subversion. It quietly disbanded in 1952. For a time, he was President of the Bank of New South Wales, Chairman of David Jones and a number of other firms. In later life, he served as President of the Boy Scouts Association and the Big Brother Movement, which assisted young British people 
to emigrate and establish themselves in Australia and was a trustee of the Gary Scholarship Trust, which provided assistance to the descendants of World War II veterans. But by 1959, it was apparent that the iron will and robust physique were starting to deteriorate, and he died of cancer on the 26th of September 1959. He was given a full military funeral, attended by former soldiers of the 9th Division, a fitting send-off for a man who began his military career as a young lieutenant storming ashore at Gallipoli and ended as one of the great Australian wartime leaders. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.